Hello and welcome to Our Last Mill, the podcast on grief, loss, and food. I'm your host, Andrew. In every episode, I talk with a guest about someone important in their life, someone that they've lost, and what role food played in the relationship. This week, I talk with artist, educator, and co-founder of Emotion Literacy Advocates, Pamela Sackett. In addition to loss, Pamela was kind enough to tell me more about her work in emotion literacy, as well as share some of her poetry with me. You're going to hear that throughout the episode. Just to acknowledge up top, there is discussion of death, and the podcast does touch on other sensitive topics such as grief and loss, so please be mindful as you listen. Please tune in to Fascinating People, Fascinating Places podcast. I interview astronauts, exorcists, historians, and political activists as we discuss the fascinating people, fascinating places of the past and present. Available on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. Honest Concoction Buy parsley, lime, oranges, ginger. Make peace with death. Buy garlic, collards, yams, eggplant. Make peace with death. Buy lettuce, celery, plums, mango. Stop holding your breath. Parsley, check. Lime, check. Oranges, check. Ginger, check. Make peace with death. Quick. Garlic, collards, check, check. Yams, eggplant, check, check. Stop holding your breath. Exclamation point. Lettuce, celery, plums, mango, check, 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 check. Make peace with death. Period. Where do I get the right ingredients? to make peace with death. What do I mix together, ferment or toss? Is it peace that feeds a life interrupted by loss? The market doesn't carry it. I can't imagine what it would cost. How do I find the magic ingredients for a life that wants to resume? I'm sure I could figure out the recipe. Don't know if it's perishable peace I want to consume. And what if I was willing to somehow make peace with myself? I estimate I'm miles from that supply shelf. Perhaps my peace is hiding behind some cupboard door. I've never quite had this craving before. Are the ingredients anywhere to be found? The ones that fill a stomach? made staggeringly empty, watching my mother being lowered into the ground. What portion of peace can coax a voracious appetite to ease when there is so much yet I want to say to her? And that will always be true. Not the popular item on the menu, frustration, What restaurant would put forth a week-long invitation to order a bowl full of rage? Neither of which I'm dying to swallow, but a bowl of untruth can be nauseatingly hollow. I know acceptance is the ultimate stage, so I guess I've got to go a ways 
before I can put together the kind of meal that allows me to digest this unsavory deal, having to say goodbye before it's time. There'll be a peace-free brew steeping here in me as much as I need to satisfy a bona fide blend of tears and rhyme. I'm your host, Andrew, and my guest this week is Pamela Sackett, co-founder of the nonprofit Emotion Literacy Advocates, where she is the principal artist and producer. Pamela teaches emotion literacy as a language artist, generating books, songs, virtual musical picture books, theatrical vignettes, in collaboration with artists all over the globe. She's been advocating for emotion literacy since coining the term in 1992. Pamela's work on behalf of ELA champions self-knowledge, self-authority, and meticulous self-care. Her expressive art and facilitation is incorporated into public and private high schools, university curricula, arts organizations, social service agency programs, youth detention and adult felon facilities, local government agency programs, conferences and broadcast media in the Pacific Northwest, Canada, and Mexico, as well as diverse points beyond. Pamela, welcome. Thank you. I am so happy that you're able to join this evening. Uh, it's the day after Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> I know this is typically not a day that most people would say, let me jump on a podcast and get interviewed for a little while, but I appreciate you making the time. Oh, sure. Sure. Glad to do it. So for, first thing I'll ask is, um, I don't know, I'm not sure if you were able to celebrate the holiday. If you do celebrate the holiday, but I hope you at least had a good Thursday mm-hmm. regardless. I, I did. We don't eat traditional meals. Uh period. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, to say we're 100% plant-based and the meal was amazing. Just amazing. Yeah, it really, really, really was. I have to, I have to thank my husband for that because he's, he's kind of a foodie. (laughs) I don't know if he likes to be referred to that way, but he's very, you know, I mean, he, he makes a, he makes his own mustard. He makes his own tomatillo sauce. He makes, incredible all kinds of sauces and and um just just amazing stuff you know really he's very uh he's very artful about it um i love that i uh so the the plant-based i'm not plant-based i i've talked with other people in the podcast about this though there are some people that they seem almost offended when someone says that they're plant-based which is insane to me there I hesitated to say it, I because I know that's true. I'm gonna get a pie in my face, you know. Um, yeah, virtually. But that's, yeah, it's ridiculous. So vegetables are delicious. I love vegetables, and it, I think people that hate vegetables, you probably had them done poorly. I used to think that I hated Brussels sprouts. I don't hate Brussels sprouts. I hate boiled Brussels sprouts that have no salt, no flavor. Uh, right, deflavorized. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. Boiled bushes. Vegetables go quietly. I can't say that for other kinds of food, but you know they do go yeah. quietly. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. You know, but vegetables are great. So no, no, there is no. This is a judgment-free podcast when it comes to to uh, vegetables. I am very pro. But you know, you said he made a great spread. What was it that he made? I, I just have to ask. Oh, so amazing. Okay, let me see if I can remember everything. Well, first of all, he made a soup. He made mm. he made a soup. And that had all these chunky, wonderful root vegetables. Had some, I think it had some celery root, had rutabagas, carrots. This is all local from the farmer's market, local organic. I love that. And uh, squash, 
three different kinds of squash. Um, and then he takes some of that out, puts it in a blender, and then he adds miso that's cured for a year. We get it from this company and they cure their miso for like a year. And oh, wow. so it's very fermented. It's like a real gourmet. It's like a fine wine, only miso. And yeah. it's chickpea miso. It's not soy. It's chickpea. Um, we also get these incredible Botija herbed olives that are picked when they're ripe. So there are a lot of olives. People don't know this. They get picked before they're ripe because it's more quote unquote, economical. And then I think they put some kind of toxic something to cure them. But with yeah. these, they're they're not picked until they are ripe. So they are really amazing. We also eat uh, a tofu substitute, which is made out of pumpkin seeds, but it has the same exact texture as tofu, which I adore. Then we also have avocado. Those are like little side things. Yeah. We also have like a sprouted corn tortilla that is just sprouted corn and maybe lime. There's nothing else in it, no oil. Oh, that um, good. So those are the, like the side things. Also a lentil loaf, which is um, a substitute for soy tempeh, which is yeah. also a fermented food. And it's just delicious. Um and then so the soup and those all those side dishes and then he he um, shreds a lot of raw vegetables. So he shreds lettuce, he shreds Napa cabbage, you know, a number of different. I don't remember all of them, but and lettuce and um, and then he makes this amazing sauce that has a lot of raw garlic and you know um, probably has. Um, some uh, Jap. Oh, we also had Japanese yams, which are very dense and sweet. Um, they're amazing, and so he puts that in the sauce with miso and the garlic and a number of other things in there. And then we pour that on the salad, and and then there's oh, the soup. Man. I mean, it just every bite was exquisite. <laughs> I had to say, every just single a ton one. of flavor. So many different flavors and. Uh, yeah, uh, it's, yeah, it was great. It was really a wonderful, it was very quiet too in the neighborhood until, until the end of the night, then some dog freaked out. I don't know. The neighbor must've left temporarily. The dog freaked out and <laughs> barked and barked and barked and barked and barked. And then somebody set off fireworks and I thought, oh my, it's been so quiet all day. The end of the day, but it didn't last for very long. Thank goodness. Um, so it was really kind of a perfect quiet calm day it was really quite lovely <laughs> i'm so glad to hear that we you know here we we had family come over we had some of my in-laws that were there and it was just it was such a nice day my, my wife and i got up early and started cooking and hosting this is this is the second year in a row, row that we've hosted and there was always pressure with that because it's I hope the house is clean enough. I hope uh, sure. everybody's comfortable. Yeah. I hope that the food that we prepare that people like, because we, we did the majority of the meal, but everything really went off without a hitch. We were, oh, that's great. The, yeah, I was, I was amazed. Maybe the, the stars were aligned. Perhaps that's the stars what, were aligned last it, night. I don't know. But yeah, it sounds like you had a similar kind of, uh, in a sense, un, 
no incidents, you know, it just went, went smoothly. It sounds like. That's the thing. Incident free is a way to explain it. The, all the, <laughs> the food was all prepared. It was done in time. Everything came out really good. There were, you know, it was Thanksgiving and there were no fights, which is always, you know, I'm not, I know it's, it's become a kind of a joke that there's always going to be some type of argument at Thanksgiving, but <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a stereotype for a reason, I guess, because I've been to plenty of them where something, there were other words said, but this one, it was just very much a, a matter of we ate, we all talked, we laughed. You know, my daughter got to see family and she she loves that. She's very family oriented. Mm. And it was great. It was it's just important. such a, yeah. And it's important, especially now after all the prohibition around social events, you know? Yeah. I mean, just getting to, and, and the thing is, she's, she's always been this way. She, um, anytime she, if I, if I mention a cousin I have, you know, that she's never even met or known about. She's immediately like, Oh, is that my cousin too? She gets excited. She lights up. She just, oh, she loves sure. the, idea, the idea of family. And yes. I, I love that. Well, know? humans are tribal, you know, I mean, we, we do, our survival depends on being a part of a circle. Yeah. I, I do think it is really important. You know, I think, I think everyone's needs are unique to the person in terms of what they need from, you know, some type of interaction from others. But I, I think sure. there is something important about, even if, if it's just, I just, I need somebody just to have light conversation with or an occasional joke, sure. but it is important. It is. Well, you know, everyone needs things in a different way. It's the way we need those things. You know, everyone has their own unique context to how they orient to that kind of exchange. And it's really, really, really important for our sense of uh, connection, you know, yeah. yeah. I, I like how you said it's, you know, for everyone too, it's, you know, it's their own. It's this, this concept I've, I've thought more and more about in the last couple of years. And I think is really important is this equality versus equity. Yes. And you know, <laughs> for anyone who maybe doesn't know the difference, you know, equality is giving everyone the same thing. Equity is giving people what they need. And mm. there is a difference, mm -hmm. you know, you can give, you know, you, the example I've seen before in, in DNI training I've done is that you could give, the same bicycle to, to a full grown adult, to a small child, to, you know, a person who's, uh, who uses a wheelchair. Technically it is a quality because they've all been given the same thing, but that's not what they need. The idea of equity is giving them that thing that they need that is catered to what, what their needs are so that they can still be successful and, and get along. And it's yeah. even with something like, uh, you know, interaction with other people, I think it is really important. It is. It is. And diversity is, is a naturally occurring phenomenon. You know, um, yeah. that's how uh, gardens grow. There's diversity. Um, I love my husband's example. Every apple, I think this is, I get this, hope I get this correct, <laughs> correctly, but something about an apple, the seeds from one apple, you plant it and another type of tree grows, actually. It's yeah. not the same as where you got the seed from. It's so interesting that, you know, it is really important to, we know we're connected. We know there's a universal thread there. And it's really critical that we understand that we're different too, because everybody has, it's like, I always think of it as a the context. Another way I, I think about it is filtration. No. We filter things in a different way. It's like the sieve, you know, it's a different mesh. Everyone has their own mesh or it's kind of like with emotion literacy. It's like, have you read your dictionary? You know, because everyone has a different dictionary. Yeah. You know, we have a different definition or a different experience, what things mean to us. You know, everybody has their own 
their own orientation to that meaning and their own way of thinking about it. And it's important to understand that because um, that's another way to connect is to understand our differences. And I think understanding is really, really important. I agree. And I, I like the way you, you mentioned that too, that we all filter things differently because, you know, we, for better or for worse, whether or not we like to admit it, we're all a product of everything that's ever happened to us. So we, <laughs> it, it's, it's this weird, I guess, dichotomy of we are all the same and that we all have the same basic needs and wants more or mm-hmm. less. However, that, you know, we've all been through different things and had different experiences it's you know how you how you can take to the same sentence the same act the same thought whatever two different people can handle that completely differently absolutely you know how they say two people can grow up in the same house yeah. and come out completely differently you know and i i would say that's true with my sister and myself you know and we're in the same house we've got the same parents you know <laughs> Um, and, you know, we are carrying all those stories, all those experiences with us. Like I, I know a lot of people say, oh, be in the present. To me, the present is everything. Everything that you bring to that moment comes from your the trajectory of your life, you know. Yeah. And um, I think that's more about um, being in the present as opposed to being gripped by fear. <laughs> I think it's more has to do with fear you know, than it does with people uh, disparaging uh, your life experience over time, you know, um, that is reflected in how you engage in the moment. You know, I do think, like you say, it's, it's all, it's everything, (laughs) you know, it's. Well, and that's, that's a good point though, too, that, you know, and I've never thought of it like that, but it's true. The present really, the present, cannot discount everything in the past. I mean, everything you've done, seen, experienced has led you to who you are. Even little things yeah. have gotten you to where you are. So to just say, well, I have to live in the present and completely ignore that. Yeah. I don't think you can do that. You can, no. you can choose not to let it, you know, dictate how you move going forward, I think. Sure. Depending, you know, some things, some things that aren't fully processed could yeah. really create a lot of obstacles in yes. having being more open to moving into some un, unknown territory, which is what every day uh, presents, really. There's a yeah. lot of uncertainty. Um, so I think, you know, it's those statements a lot of times, those memes, they drop out a lot of the nuance. Yes. And, and that's what I'm always looking at, you know. I mean, nuance for me speaks very loudly. It's very amplified to me. It's difficult for me to miss that part. That's kind of what I hear and see is that nuance, you know. So I I, I have a habit of, of, you know, it's kind of like taking a piece of fabric and, and stretching it out to see the threads, you know, <laughs> to see what the weave is. Yeah. That's kind of how I look at life experiences. I want to see those details. I'm very interested in the details. Well, you know, the, the details may, they're, they're important. And, you know, you mentioned something about nuance, how important that is. And that is a hundred percent true. Um, and I, I think, I think if more people tried to take the time to understand the nuance, I think we would all be better off. You know? Oh, so much. So really so much. So, and that's, that's one of the things that's a big part of my work in the world is really looking at the nuance and understanding that it's really a different part of our brain 
that can engage with that. It's the critical creative thinking part of our brain. It's not the primal security brain, the fight, flight, freeze brain. That brain doesn't think in, it doesn't communicate in nuance because it's set up to make a quick decision for security. However, a lot of people perceive a risk where there is, it's mostly a projection from some memory or, you know, and the brain doesn't distinguish when you're in that part of your brain, it seems real. You know, my example is always go to an adrenaline movie. And if your brain distinguished, you wouldn't get adrenaline in a movie like that. You wouldn't <laughs> understand. It's, 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 it's fiction, you know. But we can get scared at, the, at a mere suggestion. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think it's really important that um, we have more practice with this part of the brain. I mean, this is something I'm constantly talking about. <laughs> but, you know, the, the critical creative thinking part of our brain, we can rely upon that for understanding. Whereas the other part of the brain is a quick fix quick acting that isn't always fully applicable or in, in our best interest yeah. to let that dictate our, our decisions. Um, you know, it's interesting because it's immediately I start thinking about death and grief, you know, and how that the amount of the extent to which people have made an attempt to define that or to understand yeah. that or to get a, grasp of it it's it's the uncertain the most uncertain part of our lives you know is the end of our lives it's so it's 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 inherently uncertain you know because i don't know if you can experience it i mean some people say they experience it and come back but if they're i guess their body may have the heart may have stopped for a minute but they may have still been in there but i mean i don't know it's such a tricky thing you know in people's minds. But um, yeah, I think nuance is everywhere um, available. If you want to, if you're able to perceive it, if you're in the part of your brain, that's curious. That's I think, the motivator for that. And I think you're right. I think it's, if you're, if you're able to pick up on it and if you're, if you genuinely care enough to do so, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive, but I do think no. that there are some people who make the choice that I won't pick up on nuance. There is no new. Some people are so black and white, yeah. But there's so much gray area. Oh, Most, the thing is, we have. I think that you have a lot of people that are black and white, but I think everybody lives in the gray area. Well, I totally agree, and I think the 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 thing I really want to contribute in my work is for people to understand why black and white is such an attraction. No. You know, it is, again, it is part of the fight-flight brain to, to polarize things. It's, you know, think of it. If you're physically at risk, you have to make a big, quick, a quick decision. And it, you aren't going to, if you are truly physically at risk, you aren't, that part of your brain isn't not going to get you processing any of it. You have to just make a quick decision. And it's interesting that a lot of people, and especially in the last few years, there's such a sense of risk, just the suggestion of it, and plus a lot of information that's constantly reinforcing how risky everything is, as if we needed to be told. We know life <laughs> is risky. Um, and I think that that inclination 
to lean in that polarized direction is what people do to have a sense of security. It may be a mythical, it may be a myth that there is any security there, but there is some sense that, oh, if I do this, or if I'm sure, you know, if I, you know, I think people are very influenced by, you know, it's like they talk about the alpha dog, you know, someone that's commanding and makes clear statements and they're very black and white and they're very definitive and they're very sure or they sound sure. I think that a lot of people will look at that and have a sense of security, like they're being taken care of. Yeah. And they won't maybe pause and go, wait, <laughs> I may need to question this. I'm not sure if this is really the direction I want to go or if, if I can totally trust what this person is saying. I may need to do some looking into the nuance of this. You know. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, that's my theory is that, too, I think you get brain drugs when you're decisive and definitive in black and white. I think the, I think the fight, fight, freeze brain rewards you. I can and see that's that. my theory. I don't I've never heard a scientist talk about it, but I have this hunch, you know, that that's what happens because if you perceive a security, a sense of security, cause it's familiar or it sounds so sure and there's no uncertainty mixed in there that there, there's a cat, you know, there's like something in your bloodstream or your nervous system that happens that calms you down. It could even be dopamine. It's a, a misconception. Yeah. I can see that though. You know, it, whether you're the person who is, you know, being quote unquote decisive or the person who's, you know, hearing it, you know, it could be dopamine that lets you know, okay, you yeah. feel good now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, you mentioned the idea of like the alpha wolf, which I, th- I think that's even been disproven by science that, you know, wolves, they, it's not, it's not a solo, they're not a solo animal. So even that is a true misconception. Like they're, they're animals that they move in packs. Yeah. I, I personally, I don't like this whole, this idea of like, of an alpha, this alpha male, beta male, alpha per, <laughs> it just, I think it's ridiculous. I, you know, I think. Well, it's hierarchical, yeah. which is not all that inclusive. I mean, it's really, exactly. it, it creates a group mind and people yeah. obey it. And that's a whole nother huge <laughs> topic. I mean, the whole thing about the group mind and the individual mind and how one is sacrificed for the other and it needs to kind of go together. I say a group of self-aware individuals make a much more, uh, much a much safer group. Agreed. A safer group, actually. <laughs> I, I do want to, and I, I, I'm not going to say shift because I feel like we've already started scratching the scratching the, right. the surface of this. Uh-huh. Emotion literacy. Talk to me about this. What it, what is this? Explain to the audience. You know what is emotion literacy and why is it so important to you? It's something you've been studying for 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 years now, and something that you know you're clearly you're very passionate about. Well, that's true. I didn't expect to talk about this. However, I'm I'm amenable to it. I appreciate too that you said emotion literacy and not emotional literacy, because that is one of my distinctions. Um, emotional literacy. I really I don't know how long that's been uh, moving about in the society, um, but I had never heard of it. It could have been something that was happening in the fifties. I don't really know, but. I never heard of it. No. And um, my definition of emotion literacy is different than the definition of emotional intelligence or social emotional learning. So the difference for me is 
well, briefly, emotion literacy is based on the premise that emotion and feeling are not the same, hmm. even though in society they're interchangeable for most people. But emotion so. is an expression and a feeling is an internal experience. Emotion is an expression you can see and hear, even though people say, oh, I want to be free to express my emotion. That seems redundant to me because emotion is an expression, energy and motion. It's something you can see and hear. It's tangible. And yet it may not be a clear communication of the feeling and the needs that are driving it. People can get very emotional and very emotionally expressive when they are having strong feelings and needs, neither of which they might be aware of. Yeah. And that can still be expressed, but it isn't necessarily a clear communication of that feeling and that need. When my example is usually when someone is angry, they could be hurt. Yeah. And you may not know that by an angry expression. It, an angry expression may be someone trying to put up a protection because people don't warm up to anger. And I think we know that intuitively, you know. <laughs> but it's it's not necessarily you're trying to drive people away. You're just maybe trying to keep things out because maybe you've been hurt. Or maybe you're having grief. You're trying to protect and, yourself. Yeah, I mean, we react to our feelings and needs, but not in a fully conscious way. Because also the premise is that when we were first experiencing our feelings and needs as young people, and we weren't perhaps reflected back or taught about what that was so we could understand it, or they weren't accepted because children do are congruent. Usually a child's emotional expression is quite congruent with their feeling and need. I mean, think of a baby. Yeah, I can attest to that. Yeah, we have a child. So, um, So communication is, for me, really important. It's a really important essence of being alive. and having relationships. And I learned that from some experiences I had as a teenager, and I didn't really recognize this till way later, my experiences as a teenager, some things that happened to me were not by me understood how they affected me. I was fed back information, a story was told to me, and it didn't really represent what my experience was. And so, and also I'm an artist and I um, started writing around that time and language comes easy for me. So I learned through writing that there is definitely oftentimes there can be a lot of disparity between what's expressed and what's really being experienced. And I wrote, I was commissioned to write a a lot of things for other people. I wrote a play um, about uh, that was based on um, the story of of six emotionally, uh, mentally and emotionally challenged people. And um, I wrote a script 
that was representative of their story that they wanted to tell and they and they performed it. And I also designed theatrical monologues for actors. And it's just a very involved story how I came to do this. But eventually what happened is I wrote a book that told my story that basically took narrative in hand in a conscious way and deconstructed the story I grew up with that didn't really accurately represent my experience. And not knowing what that experience truly meant to me posed problems, even though I I got very involved. Well, I grew up in the arts. I've been in the arts my entire life since I was five, first as a performer, but then as a writer. And um, writing gave me a way to really, especially with this book, I was able to use narrative to deconstruct that story and to recreate what was representative for me and to help me process what all that meant to me. Being told a story that didn't represent and then trying to find the true story for, you know, for, for my, you know, it's basically looking at infrastructure, talk yeah. about nuance. Um, <laughs> language is an interesting portal to the parts of your human experience that aren't verbal, that are, are a language all their own, because feelings are nonverbal. It's hard to get a feeling across to someone. Well, the experience of it happens somatically. It happens in the body. And we attach words to it. We attach descriptions to it. And oftentimes what I've noticed is that a lot of the way we talk about feelings and emotion is very polarized and polarizing. And this is part of what I do with the language and the art forms that I avail myself of and that I the skills that I've cultivated is to depolarize our way of under of organizing ourselves around that to get to an understanding because understanding isn't black and white it's nuanced yeah. so I learned over time the efficacy of language to represent what is difficult to represent in the English language. Um, And still I'm learning that there's still a lot of communication that communication skills that I need to develop that aren't, that have nothing to do with the language skills that I've achieved. (laughs) They're just strictly being, having a bodily experience and whether you can understand it fully with your mind or not, it's still valid and it's still something that you have to understand how to navigate. And so that's, that's more my, my path now, but um, what I do with emotion literacy advocacy is use art to art does such a good job. And I will read some of that. Um, I mean, some of it's spoken word, some of it's musical, some of it's theatrical um, that I do. I use all these different forms Um, But it does well to represent the layers of nuance. It, 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 then, then it becomes a visceral experience. Um, Sometimes we can't really understand things with our mind and we can't really know. We've had experiences that we've never processed possibly when we were young 
that were pre-verbal. We were pre-verbal. And if, and they were bot- even, even when we were verbally adept, I mean, experiences in the body are not verbal. I mean, they just aren't. So um, it's an interesting, you know, I've had a real, given myself a real handle on things, you know, thinking about working with you and, and having this conversation with you on this podcast, you know, I thought, well, if he wants me to start talking about grief, well, I'm going to have to read some of these pieces <laughs> on my book because it's safe for me to safer for me to do that. I mean, you know, I'll go off on tangents. You know, these things yeah. are so complex, and the art form is able to capture something that is beyond words in a way by using words. So anyway, I don't know if any of this makes sense to answer your question or what, but. No, it does. I mean, and, and I think the way you explain art though, it's, it's true because I mean, I, I won't say good art because I, I hate the phrase good art. I, I think, I don't think anyone can make that judgment. I don't think anyone can say that something is good or bad art, Yeah. but art in and of itself, you know, the, the, the hope I would imagine is to capture a feeling. Yeah. It could be the most shallow feeling or what you may think is a shallow feeling. It could be the most distressing thing that you've ever experienced, but that is the point of art is to capture that. Absolutely. And art can be so many things. And that's, that's what I love about it. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you said, you said something when you were talking about, you know, feeling versus emotion and it clicked for me because this is something I, I don't know where I heard this, but I heard it one time and I've thought about this for years. And I have to remind myself this sometimes I talk to my wife about this, my daughter, you can't control how you feel about something. You can only control how you respond to it or how you react to it. Which is the emotion. And yeah. And oftentimes that's a knee jerk that you can't really prevent, but you could have resilience around it and understand why you responded that way. And then maybe get more skilled at recognizing what's going on before it jumps out at you. And that makes sense. I mean, cause I, I, I can't tell you how many times I, my response to something is to, to get mad. I try to talk my, like, the, the biggest one is probably the silliest one, which is in traffic whenever somebody's driving erratically and being unsafe and putting me or my family in danger. My, my visceral reaction is anger and wanting to scream at this person. Well, you know, it's, it gives you a sense of agency when you do that, because at least you're able to express something, even though part of that is that you don't, you know, you don't have control over yeah. somebody, you know, well, some people try to take control. Yeah. And then, and then you get into, thing. yeah, then you get into road rage and I, yeah, I, exactly. Wanna... <laughs> exactly. I have a vignette called road, road rage meets emotion literacy in one of our learning tools that I'll, goes through this whole process with this, this motion literacy student. It's like a fictional school. <laughs> and I take a ride with him and he goes into this whole road rage thing. But um, just for the fun of it, I could send you that MP3. It's a five minute vignette. It's played on the radio a number of times, but it's, it's kind of an interesting example of applying emotion literacy right in the moment to that experience that this person's having with her. If you would send that to me, I would love that. I'd love to, to link that up to guests or to, to listeners too. Yeah, I I, it's easy. I have it and it, it's really easy to send. Um, I would, you know, I would be glad to do it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting too. Part of how I got into this is because I, that book that I wrote, I went out with it 
before it was done being written. And I did a lot of dramatic readings from mm. that collection of writing that I had started to do. And I did it with other people and I did it at conferences in different places and um, schools and people responded very strongly. So, and very favorably. And it spoke to them, even though I was basically uh, telling very particular story to myself, it gave people a sense of permission to look at their own story. And that, that was part of the fuel behind, like you say, I'm passionate about, I, I was fed fuel along the way because I shared a lot of the work yeah. and the responses I got let me know, oh, okay, that was a scary thing to do to start sharing some of that material because it was very personal to me. And a lot of the writing I'd done were, was, you know, for other people or commissioned by other people, other people's stories or fictional things, you know, and this was, this was a, a really, uh, took a lot for me to be willing to do that, but I felt like it was important to do for a number of reasons. And based on the responses I got, I realized a certain level of importance that I, I hadn't assumed yeah. would be there. I really didn't. And so I was surprised by that. And that just kept me going with it. And it just kept growing and growing and growing and more and more material got created. And, you know, and then I started collaborating even more. I was always collaborating with some people, not the narrative, but putting, producing the work. And, and then there's this whole series of songbooks now that I have these virtual musical picture books that were illustrated by artists from all over the globe during the pandemic. That's what I did. That is I wonderful. I created 11 of those. And just this idea that, you know, finding something that's very personal to you. And I, I think this is a great reinforcement of you. You know, you can go through something, experience something. And there's all there's it's so easy to have this mindset of no one could understand what I've gone through. And people may not understand exactly the thing you went through, but they can relate. Yeah. There is so much that is that is universal, and it is it is not bound, I think, necessarily by culture. It is not bound by language, by age. There is so much that, about our lives that is that is universal, and and you know, not even yeah. just. I mean, some some other kinds of animals <laughs> share yeah. some of our fears and our concerns too and they you know you could sort of see see that in some animals especially domesticated yeah. ones yeah i i have two cats um one of whom is still a kitten so i don't think he's he's not quite there yet but our older cat she is <laughs> she's such she's she's such a sweet cat she is so affectionate and she's very much a you know maybe it's just because she wants me to feed her but she i really do feel like she's very um she's very comforting just very sweet yeah and, yeah, I, having an animal nearby, I think, is is it's it's a great joy of life. I, re well, I really believe that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of science, a lot of research that it's actually really helpful for the nervous system to have to have other kinds of animals in your company. I you believe know, that. Just human human ones. Yeah, but yeah. We're, you know, and then what you're talking about is the, it's a human. Well, emotion is is you know they say elephants cry. Yeah, there've been a, there's a lot of oh you know. Um, animals that nurture their young and uh there's all kinds of things that are shared there with with human the human culture yeah. all kinds of things yeah 
I, I am going to shift just a little bit. Um, I do, you know, going into the topic of uh, what the, the podcast is about, which is, you know, loss, grief, and food. I know whenever I reached out to you, we, whenever we were speaking um, before the show, I know you, you told me that it was hard for you to kind of pinpoint one specific loss or item of grief that you thought, you know, this is the thing I want to talk about. But it sounded like you had... There are multiple different things. And so I wanted to go into that and just whenever I reached out, whenever we talked about the concept, you know, where did your, where did your mind go whenever you thought about loss and grief and food? Yeah. Well, I feel like, I mean, everybody's experienced someone who's they've lost for, you know, like we talked about earlier, there are so many different kinds of losses, but in terms of death, yeah. Um, it really did uh, propel me into a lot of thoughts about my experiences growing up. And um, I mentioned to you, and, and you know, that I wrote this book called Booing Death with Spilkas in rhyme. And Spilkas is Yiddish for nervous energy. Um, that came out of a year starting 2011, and I think it went into 2012, part of 2012, where a whole bunch of people died in my life. And, um, and then, but then I also thought about, because as I wrote this book, I didn't start writing it right away. I didn't start writing it, I don't think until, I don't know, a couple years later, um, because I had to handle my mother's estate. My mother was one of the people that died. And I had to handle her estate from across the country. Mm. And um, I had to pretty much handle it myself. Uh, And so, um, but then eventually after some of those responsibilities had, had, you know, um, quieted down, I started, when I started, I started writing this book. And then I started remembering other experiences that I had because I did have an experience when I was 13, uh, my best friend growing up, who I wasn't living down the street from anymore because we moved to a different neighborhood. Um, and that was our first year not living down the street from each other. But that was also the year her father got shot and killed. And that, you know, and it was so interesting, you know, it's like, because of what you're doing, I, I really didn't, I mean, I've thought about the fact that food played a big role in my relationship with her growing up because her father owned a grocery store. (laughs) And so he brought food home and, um, you know, all kinds of food. And I would sit there and, um, she was, my friend, uh, was, was, you know, used to that. And I wasn't because my parents didn't have fudgesicles and, you know, all this kind of stuff. The stuff the kids want. Yeah. She used to call me the bottomless pit. I was like a, (laughs) any little kid because I was a dancer. I took, I danced for several years and I was a performing dancer and actress as a small child, you know? Um, but anyway, food was a big part. I mean, that's also what happened. I mean, he owned a grocery store in a rural area and someone came in and robbed him and shot him. And so, you know, I started thinking about that relationship. It's like, Oh, loss, grief and food. And so I started thinking about that, like, Oh, but he doesn't want to talk about that. You know, you're trying to talk about, 
you know, celebrating what you, you know, celebrating the life through a wonderful meal or your memory of the last meal. But, you know, I realized how many um, uh, nuances there are in the food component around yeah. these, these relationships. Um, but the, the, the year, the reason, part of the reason is because I, I think writing this book was a, a more direct way for me to engage with grief um, than I might have otherwise, partly because writing is such an important part of how it's a, it's a strategy. I mean, it started out being a strategy, even though, because I grew up in the arts, I was writing things that I was performing almost immediately. You know, I wasn't writing a private journal. I've almost never done that. I mean, maybe a little bit, but because I sort of grew up in show business, you know, <laughs> everything I wrote, even though it was, it was very, you know, I had a personal relationship with that. It was, it's still almost, it kind of, usually turned out to be performance material. So you weren't um, writing for yourself. You were writing for the world. Well, I think I was always writing to communicate something to myself first. However, it was always in a, in a vessel, the vessel through which I was f- funneling that energy, those feelings and those expressions and that communication was based on my training and the influences, like the things my parents exposed me to as a child, which were some very brilliant, edgy performers. I mean, from elementary school. And I've I've talked about this. I mean, I have a book called Saving the World Solo, and I talk about it in the back. I mean, um, I mean, my husband wrote this. What do you do when you get when what do you get when you mix a childhood forged in the boozy haze post-war partying of the 50s replete with Lenny Bruce recitations at age eight? (laughs) With an adulthood as a college-hopping educational film actress, boy guru disciple, L.A. songwriter, nightclub comedian, and prison school teaching artist, you get a feeling-centric, language-obsessed Cleveland refugee who has an epiphany and decides to save the world. And then there's this little list with a humble offering of delusions of grandeur, flashbacks and forward thinking, (laughs) wit and wisdom, formidable foibles, unrelenting challenge to the resigned intransigence of the status quo, run-on sentences, wild stories, mostly true. So that's kind of my my childhood and my upbringing, you know, in the arts. And of course, you know, I started writing Booing Death. And soon afterwards, a teacher that I'd worked at, worked with, and had worked at her schools with um, for a year, a number of different schools, um, as a teaching artist and a guest artist, she took a look at this and put it on the, you know, required, well, not wasn't a required reading list. She put it in a, she selected it for a book seminar for her, her students in high school as an honors credit, they could take this course, which meant reading the book, coming to one of the author events. And I created a study guide for them and they were young. Uh, I mean, you know, they're teenagers. Yeah. And though, though they were young, they were experiencing death of their grandparents and they weren't uh, new to that experience. And they were really interested in learning a way to cope with that experience and to understand it. And they'd never run across a book that was totally about this topic of death 
Yeah. And um, so it was an interesting, you know, so there's an example right there. The book that I wrote that was super, super, I mean, they're all personal. You write about what you know, you know, yeah. but that book that I talked about earlier um, that started me down this whole path that was put on, that was put on a required reading list at a university. So it's just this odd mix that, that I'm in, you know, it's really personal, but it's not, it's not a journal. It has in it, there's something instructive in it. Do you think it could be too, that just some of it is your comfort level? Cause I, I think, you know, you, you've, I'm sure you've heard before that, you know, the only thing that people on average are more afraid of than death is public speaking. So this idea of <laughs> it's this, it, there's, it's the idea of vulnerability is what I take. from Oh that. yeah. Because oh, yeah. public spe- it's, you mentioned yourself, you know, putting, you know, putting your art out there for me personally, putting this podcast out there is incredibly uncomfortable, but it's something I do because I, I feel strongly about, it. but I, I wonder if maybe it's your comfort level, you know, and that's why it feels personal, but it also, it is a, a comfortable thing to put out there, or maybe it could even just be your driver of trying to, you know, connect with people. Well, I think it's all those things and it is a form of receiving witness. There's something about, of course, you know, I have to put it into an art form, (laughs) not, you know, a lot of people that join a support group and they talk about all this stuff. Um, I did another podcast. It's really interesting. I did a podcast with somebody and he formed a group, like a support group around his podcast because he touches on, I'm going off on a tangent here. I hope I don't lose my thread, but (laughs) he, he, um, he, the, the, the podcast I did with him was called shadow work, uh, breaking the rules to address trauma, depression, suicide, and healing. And he wanted to tap into my my emotion literacy work to have a way of looking at those um, social problems um, that he thought might be helpful because yeah. he he's on a lot of social media sites and he was shocked and dismayed by how many people shared suicidal thoughts. So he found me and then he tapped into the things that my orientation to these kinds of things. Anyway, he formed a support group and, or gave that as an option for people who were coming to his podcast and listening. And I was asked to come and sort of co-facilitate one of them. And I couldn't believe the stories people were telling about their childhoods and the the treachery, the absolute. And I thought, wow, they're brave to just talk about it in plain yeah. English. No, I can't do that. I have to put it into an art form. <laughs> so, but anyway, yeah, I mean, but I want to say before I forget, you are a very comforting presence. Thank you. And you are offering something tremendous to people because if there's one thing people desperately need now is a comforting presence. And you have that. I just think it's part of your nature. Thank you so and, much. Yeah. And it, it's just, it's really, really such a, a, a marvelous thing. Um, so it's easy to talk to you. And I see how this will be, if it isn't already, it probably is already, but it will grow into even more and more success because of what you're offering 
and you're curious, which is such a healthy uh, stance, such a healthy footing to be curious and to model curiosity. And, you know, I mean, you said this is about the people you talk to, but I have to say <laughs> it's really the host of the podcast is really critical. I'm, I don't want to burst your bubble <laughs> of, of obscurity. However, you know, it's really critical. Um, Thank you so much. Your presence in it. And um, yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Let me, um, there's another one I wanted to touch on. You, you, you also talked to, we, you know, we, we spoke before we started recording today just to kind of warm up and, and talk a little bit of, you know, details. You mentioned something though about the differences culturally with, you know, with grief and, you know, how you and your husband had had different approaches. Could you talk to me a little bit about that? Yes. May I read the piece that I wrote about it? I would love that. Uh, I'm so glad because, um, and this is, you know, there, there's some levity in this. It's not, um, what should I say? Um, maybe I could say there's irony in it. But anyway, yes. All right. So this is the piece. Because in this other piece, which maybe I'll get to, the trajectory of departures yeah. in that year of 2011, 2012. We'll see if we can put that in there. But anyway. This is called Ashes to Ashes. Let's put our ashes on the table in their big plush red velvet bag. We've got empty spice jars in the cupboard for each one. I'll give you a nice tag. I mixed mom and dad after breakfast before our SID meeting time. Mom's ashes were a bit chunky. Dads were incredibly fine. Let's put our ashes on the table and dole some out for us to take. Let's help ourselves before we go to mom's traditional coffee cake. Let's put our ashes on the table. Cremation technology has sure changed since mom's day. Do you want a caravan to the cemetery? I'll lead the way. My husband's family is not like mine. To say they are well-adjusted is an understatement, but does that mean my family is equilibrium challenged? Yes. I try not to fall prey to comparisons, but I need a frame of reference. And when my parents died, there was no order, no plan, no coping. There was, in a word, chaos, torment, profound lack of resolve. My husband's family seems to be immune to these phenomena. Is it their Unitarian slash Methodist slash one for all, all for one protocol? Are their brains different? Do they lack persecution and perfectionism in their genetic history? Well, if they don't lack it, it's gotten washed out because I've never seen them argue or blame or disagree, or voice a serious grievance. No one raises their voice. No one undemocratically seizes focus. Discrepancies, discrepancies, discrepancies never turn into conflicts. Conflicts never turn into overt and covert wars, like in my family, that go on for years. And there were no ashes in my family. Everyone is plopped whole 
into the ground. Though granted the act is unmentionably reminiscent, I don't theoretically disagree with cremation. It's just I don't really want to see the ashes or interact with them on a kitchen table. And I am certainly not going to make a cozy mental space for the idea of doggy bagging my own portion and taking them home. The first time I met my husband's parents and one of his four siblings, there were ashes on the table, but they were in a tray at the end of a cigarette. I was relieved because at that long ago time, I smoked. My husband never smoked, so when I got to his parents' house and saw his dad making granola, cigarette in hand, and his divorced brother sitting at the table, cigarette in hand, I felt relieved. My husband's devoted mother was under the weather, so I didn't meet her that night, nor did I meet his other two very upstanding brothers or his awe-inspiring sister, the Ash Organizer. I enjoyed convening with my husband's father and brother that night in my husband's family home and for numerous nights there to come. It never occurred to me I would one day see a bag filled with mom's and dad's own body's ashes on that same table where we flicked cigarette ashes and roared heartily, where we discussed the world into the wee hours, where one Mother's Day, many moons ago, we opened a bottle of wine to toast our decision to marry a decision made that very Mother's Day. It never occurred to me I'd see their ashes, much less be invited to dole them out on that iconic table where my husband and I broke bread with his huge, multi-generation, multi-century American family on and off through years of our mostly blissful mixed marriage. The gathering at the graveside where the ashes were entombed, was altogether harmonious. Oh, there were some tears and some deeply touching letters parsed out for reading from mom and dad's courtship and pregnancy days and from the days of my husband's mom's premature death. But I couldn't detect even just a hint of wretchedness or a speck of mangled agony like in my family where both seemingly innate emotional states are my sister's and mine to enjoy in perpetuity. My endearing dad-in-law possessed whatever the opposite of entitlement is. He was a man of quiet, constant gratitude and unconditional love. And by the sound of the letter gently read by one of my husband's brothers, the letter he wrote his out-of-state in-laws about his wife's untimely illness and sudden death in July of 1988. He seemed to be filled with an abundance of heavenly acceptance in equal proportion to his earthly composure. My father's letters, I vaguely recall, were adoring and humorous, but they were difficult to read because Though he was a general contractor by profession, he had the handwriting of a prescribing physician. The only letters I found when my mother departed were ones she decided not to send me. I wouldn't want to see those read in public before or after anyone's death, but I can tell you neither acceptance nor gratitude were extended on any of those pages. 
the imperturbability in my husband's family stands out to me like a sore thumb. It's a painful reminder of just how far I must go to emulate and effectively internalize what I consider to be a model stance in life, for life and around death. A stance, a stance which I can't come anywhere near even approaching with anywhere near the gracefulness or elegant simplicity with which my husband and his noble family of origin are undeniably endowed. Still, I can't help, cannot help but ask, what is wrong with them? I just, I love and appreciate so much that you can take such a difficult topic and add in so much humor and just raw emotion. And thank you for reading that. I thank oh, you so welcome. much. Oh, you're so welcome. I, you know, I'm not used to tripping over my words. So it's been a while since I've done these, these readings. So I, I am a little rusty. However, thank you for for appreciating it despite the flaws. <laughs> no, that was great. And I, it is, it, it, I see what you mean too about just how, how much difference there was in the grief process and just it, it going through loss like that. I think it, it, it makes you think about, and you just, you notice so much more about your family when you go through these times. I oh, know yeah. any, any funeral I've ever been to, I mean, it's almost like you're hyper aware of every person and everything they do. Yeah. It's an extreme biosphere. Yeah. You know, I talk about extreme states. It's an extreme state and it's an extreme biosphere. It's, it's one of the most challenging occurrences that we can as humans experience. It's, it's the least known, the least understood. Yeah. And that can incite a lot of fear and, apprehension and, you know, all kinds of things that, um, uh, you know, indicate the difficulty in coping with it. Yeah. You said something earlier and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially death is the, it is, it is a, the only certain thing and it is the most uncertain thing at the same time. Yeah. yeah. It's a, such a paradox. It, yeah. That's such a paradox. It yeah. really is. Yeah. Um, I did want to ask you too, you know, uh, again, this going back to our, you know, our, our pre-recording communications and just growing up, how important were big family gatherings to you when it came to food and just having your family together? Well, that's an interesting and loaded topic really for, for me and my family. Um, my mother was a professional model and so she was extremely careful put it mildly, about what she ate. Yeah. However, she, my parents were kind of party animals. So a lot of the food that I was privy to, perhaps even not necessarily overtly, but I made myself, uh, I made it available to myself <laughs> because my mother would have these sauerkraut balls, breaded sauerkraut balls that I adored. And, um, when the parties weren't happening, they were in the freezer down the basement. 
Yeah. So I think I was able to get some of those. Now sneak I didn't eat them frozen, but I brought them up and heated them up. Some <laughs> of the things I did have to sneak because my mother was also very cautious around what I would eat. Um, so the party food was incredible. Um, my mother, though, too, uh, was she was really a good she was good at putting food together. She made pies and um, all kinds of things like that. She also, towards my latter years in high school, she made these amazing salads and they were just so good. So, um, and also my grandmother, I had two living grandmothers and two dead grandfathers, like they were widowed. My grandmother's wow. widow before I ever was born. Um, my father was four, or no, my father was seven when his father died. And my mother was 21 when her father died. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I never met them. Um, but my grandmothers lived not too far from each other. So we would go to their houses to visit. My grandmothers lived with one of my father, my, my paternal grandfather, grandmother lived with one of my dad's brothers, wives, and their two children. And my other grandmother lived with one of my mom's sisters and her husband and their child. And so we would go there and they had, there was all kinds of food things that happened there. Like my aunt, my grandmother, uh, my my mother's mother had they had like a candy cupboard, candy yeah. and cookie cupboard. We we didn't we never had that. We had a cupboard with chips in it or whatever or crackers, but they had like nothing sweet, extensive, extensive sweets. Yeah, and they had a waffle maker and stuff like that. So um, we would eat, and my grandmother made sugar cookies and all this kind of stuff. I would never eat now, um, but anyway, and my my other grandmother. Hungarian. Well, my my mother's mother's uh, Lithuanian, and my grandfather, um, who wasn't in the picture when I came in, was Romanian. And my dad's mom, both of my dad's parents were Hungarian, or my you know were Hungarian, and so there was a lot of Hungarian kinds of foods that my grandmother would prepare. Oh wow! Um, and we had religious we had religious holidays there too, and. I just, I don't, you know, I don't know how much the food played into it, but maybe too, because my father was more comfortable with his family than my mother was comfortable with hers. But I really loved going there. And um, I just, I just think, you know, as a kid, you pick up on stuff. And if your parent is more relaxed, you become more relaxed, you know. And I was going to say, because kids are more perceptive than we give them credit for. I can't, I can't keep much from my daughter. If I'm, if something's bothering me, she picks up on it right away. Oh yeah. And they may not be able to articulate about it. Exactly. But it gets registered. It gets registered in the body. Kids, kids sense and, and really there's a radar, you know, because that hasn't been a shutdown. I think we all come in with intuition and perceptive, you know, skills, but perception skills, but, um, I think that what changes is if we're taught how to talk about them, you know. Yeah. When yeah. my when my grandfather passed away last year, um, there were times leading up to it 
that uh, it was especially hard for me. And I, I would, you know, obviously I'd cry. I'd, it would break down a couple times. And it was, it was really hard for me to let myself at first because, you know, I, I have this sense of I need her to see me as a source of strength. And, uh-huh. and it, 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 thankfully, it's not something that I bottled up for a long time and it finally just exploded out. But, you know, I would try to kind of step away. But I remember a time that I, I sat down on my bed and <laughs> he hadn't passed away yet, but it, we'd gotten news that it was not looking good at all. My daughter, she just got up, sat down beside of me and was kind of rubbing my back and she wasn't afraid. She all she just wanted to be comforting. And yeah. kids are very perceptive. And very, very, very much so. And I'm thankful yeah. I've got a very sweet, kind, uh, caring one as well. That's so great. Well, you've you've been an example, you know, um, because you have that you have such a calming demeanor. Um and you know, it's interesting how we regard crying in this culture. Yeah. Um, even in the language, you know, you say break down and cry. And I have, I have, I'm going to send you this one too. <laughs> to the front of it. Um, it's uh, tears and crying meet emotion literacy. Uh, it's another one of those little vignettes. That's part of that learning tool. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's part of, how we are taught to regard crying, you know, and, um, and I talk about that way of, of, of thinking about it. To me, it takes a lot of courage to cry in public. I mean, you know, here's the example I I like to give when a child cries in public or a baby, no. You don't think much of it unless they're screaming bloody murder. You want to be being, you know, thrashed. But, you know, but usually, oh, yeah, that's what babies do. Yeah, of course. And when an adult cries, they're either called a crybaby. And when, if they cry in public, there's got to be something seriously wrong. Everybody's is, uncomfortable. Yeah, uncomfortable. And it's like an indication of how we orient to a bodily experience that's part of nature's gift. Crying creates endorphins and it's a way to soothe anxiety or soothe grief, you know? And, um, I, you know, I have a piece in my book about that. Um, well, it's a a little element in it where it has to do with the, my friend's father being killed. And we went to that funeral and they were put in, they were like shrouded in this black curtain around where the family was put, you know, and the crying was so intense. I had never heard crying like that in my life. Now, of course, it's not, it's not the kind of crying that happens that it's, it's usually not going to happen if somebody dies in their nineties through of natural, natural causes. causes. This yeah. was, he was ripped from their lives. And so the grief was mixed with a lot of complex stuff, you know, because of the circumstances. But I just remember how at, it just, it was so horrifying, that yeah. expression. And it was the most perfect congruent expression of what the situation was. And yet we just have been taught over time, especially men and boys, 
not allowed to cry. And this is one of those taboos that, you know, for, you know, I mean, it's a tough one that I, I guess I'm not willing to give up, but I really want the culture to change their relationship. But I think things are changing around it. I think it's more understood that this is not a sign of weakness. However, I think there are still a lot of people that are indoctrinated into that association. And, and, you know, um, when a, a child sees someone go through an experience like that and express an experience, not, not that, I mean, that is a really extreme experience yeah. that actually, you know, uh, uh, there are a lot of people on earth that have had to go through that kind of experience, having someone ripped from their lives through a violent act. Um, and I'm just saying that any way that you express yourself congruently around what you're experiencing inside is an important model for a child to understand that you can express that, which means you're letting that feeling live inside of you and you move through it. You know, it's like, it's like people talk about dwelling, you know, this thing about grief too. It's like, how long does it take to grieve the loss of somebody? Who's to say how long that takes and people want to rush you through it, you know? Yeah, and they, they, there isn't a lot of support for that part of the spectrum, and this is this is a really it. I mean, grief and loss is a, and even food is a perfect topic to which you can apply emotion literacy tenets and things that I understand about about what it means, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, truth is a major factor. What is really true inside, and oftentimes we don't really know. We don't know if we don't have a language that allows us to perceive it and um, be with it and understand it, you know. Um, so it's it's really important that your daughter does see you have an experience like that and express an experience like that so that she knows it's okay for her to do that. Yeah. Well, you know, in the year and a half since it's happened, you know, because she, she spent time with him. She, she knew him. She can still remember going to his house and, you know, she, she'll ask me sometimes, you know, do you, do you miss, still miss grandpa? And I'm like, of course I do. And she's kind of had a chance to see up front, up close and personal what this process was like for me. She got to see me crying when I found out he was sick. She got to see me break down essentially whenever, okay, it's, it's terminal and we don't have much longer. She got to see me cry the day that we got a phone call that we don't think he'll make it through the day. And then she got to see me the the day he did pass away. Finally, obviously crying, but also it's, it's that moment of like almost relief isn't the right word, but it's that acceptance of, okay, this is the thing we've been expecting. Yeah. And, and then in the year and a half since she's seen me go from, you know, tearing up when she, we, she asked about him to telling her, you know, Hey, you can, you can ask me questions if you want to, to now. I mean, she she asked me honestly not that long ago, you know, if I was still sad about it and if I still miss him. I said, of course I do, you know. But it's it's a lot easier to talk about it now. Sure. And so I, sure. I, 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 one of the first things I thought whenever we found out he was sick was how do I explain this to her? Because it's it's gonna I don't know how I'm gonna, I'm gonna explain that. And now it's you mean the idea of death, the whole yeah. idea of loss. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I have a vivid memory of being in uh, you know, being in a church when I was a kid and finding out like what death is and then like, Oh, it's forever. And I freaked out because <laughs> the idea of infinity 
to a child's brain <laughs> was way too much for me. I still struggle with that as an adult. I'm 35 and I still struggle with the idea of forever. And it's easy yeah. for to, it's easy to break my brain <laughs> with the still. Yeah. So I wanted well, to be as sensitive. Grasp it. I mean, there's no way you could because thoughts are finite. Yes. How do you contain yeah. something that's uncontainable? You know. So you know exactly. And I I was I was sensitive to like okay how do I how do I do this with her? And yeah. I think you know year and a half past it. I think she understands to the extent that she can. And I think she, uh, she accepts it to the extent that she can. And I also think though, that she's seen that, you know, she can ask questions and, you know, I'm in a place now where I can, I can try to answer them for her and, and try to share memories and try to just, you know, tell her what I, what I know to be true is that, you know, the people we love, I mean, we, we keep them with us inside. Yeah. And I've tried to explain mm -hmm. that to her <laughs> again. I don't know how well you can explain that to a six year old, yeah, but they are incredibly perceptive, and yeah. I see so much kindness in her that makes me really hopeful. Oh, it, yeah, that would, of course. Yeah. And she, um, too, will learn about how to orient around the unknowable. Yeah. That for you to say sometimes, I don't know, I mean, to, to share the experience you have and how you how, you know, what your coping strategy is for it or how you view it or what it means to you, what yeah. it means to you, you know, um, all those things are uh, essential for her to be exposed to and also for her to be exposed to the whole topic of what's unknowable, like to be able to understand that there are some things in life that you can't know. There are, there are uncertainties. I think that is a really important part of life to familiarize yourself with because it's, it's like, it's such a dichotomy. I mean, no, you're talking about how do you familiarize yourself with unfamiliarity? <laughs> you know? um, yeah. but at the same time, I think that, that, that it's important to visit with that because oftentimes uncertainty is so scary to us. We avoid it at all costs by making up stuff that isn't true or, you know, that isn't verifiable and, you know, and, and, um, and clinging to those things because we're so scared, you know, so afraid of uncertainty. And, you know, so, I mean, it seems like, it seems counterintuitive and at the same time, I do think that there is a way for us to develop a capacity because, you know, curiosity is all about approaching uncertainty, you know, to be able to say, I don't know. You could be curious and never really have your questions answered. Is that okay? Can we cope with that? Can we cope with not knowing? And oh, if we great. can't, what is sacrificed or what kind of path are we led down? to just fill in the blank with whatever we can. You know what I mean? I mean, I think it's yeah. an interesting exploration. It, there, that is, I think that is life is living with a lot of unknown and mm -hmm. trying not, not trying not to let it drive you crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's easier said than done sometimes. Yeah, it is. It really is. It really is. And I think it is one of the biggest pitfalls for why de decisions are made that aren't in our best interest. Yeah. They're made too quickly. 
We don't want to stay in that uncertainty. And sometimes that uncertainty could lead to more certainty, but we'd have to be able to be in the uncertainty for a little bit longer than we're comfortable with. And, and if we can do that, or if we're willing to do that, then maybe we're going to, you know, get to a place where the decision will be a better one. Yeah. You know, if we could just wait a little longer. And this is this is a this is an important life skill. It's an important yeah. life skill to have, I think. And I'm I'm not saying I've mastered it. <laughs> I, I haven't. I I fill in the blank often, very often. I I default to my fight, flight, freeze brain quite often. I'm very familiar with it. But but I you know, I'm, I'm aiming for more yeah. more from another part of my brain. So yeah. But- I do think, though, that, you know, recognizing that, though, recognizing your deficiency in an area is, and I'm not, and please understand, I don't mean deficiency in a, in a, in a negative way, but re- recognizing mm-hmm. a deficiency in an area, I think is, is important because I think that there are a lot of people that they don't see where they have a deficiency. I, I know I. Maybe they're afraid to admit yeah. they're, you know, there's shame or they're uh, afraid of scrutiny or disparagement, yeah. you know, from onlookers. I know that there, I'm sure there's a lot of things that I need to be better at or be more in tune with. And I don't know what they are yet, or I, I haven't acknowledged it. I hope to do so one day though. And then to get better <laughs> at them, you know, yeah. think, thankfully I've got a lot of stuff that I need to get better at. So I've got a full plate of things I can improve on now, but there is there, I think there is, you know, this, this idea that there's always an area that you can grow. And the first step towards getting better in things is acknowledging it. Absolutely. Um, oh, Definitely. That's a huge, huge skill right there. Just acknowledging it's a huge yeah. step to take, I think. Yeah. I, um, I, I'm going to shift this again. Uh, cause I want to circle back to, you know, the, the book you re- you mentioned that you read the year that you had from 2011 to 2012, you said you experienced a great deal of loss. Um, I know you told me that you, you read a, you wrote a piece specifically about that. And I was wondering yeah. if you could read that to us as well. I would be glad to. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So let's see. I marked, marked it somewhere. Let's see. Let me see if I can find it. Sure. Um, and I believe this piece is called Not Again. Is that correct? There it is. Yes, yes. I just got it. Yes. Um, not Again. <clears throat> no sooner did we arrive home, <clears throat> excuse me, From our out-of-town family fiasco, our fast-lane funeral, orchestrated for our deeply disturbingly, unexpectedly expired mother, our record-time rounding up of her heartbreakingly reminiscent personal effects, our somewhat hasty and desperate hiring of a lawyer for probate court, our securing of a Yellow Pages liquidator who surprisingly knew someone who knew someone related to my husband. When we received a call letting us know our dear 60-something cohort, our cable access video producing champion organizer and visionary of yesteryear, the bridge to meeting my husband numerous years ago, had died from a condition he let be known to only a few. No sooner did we return from our old friend's out-of-town memorial, where people raved and chimed about our friend to all, where donuts were served and junk food 
his favorite pastime, was a recurring theme at the rain-tented proceedings. When we received a call telling us that another 60-something friend, the husband of an old theater associate, had dropped dead on the racquetball court. No sooner did we attend his memorial, where a full-blown choir belted their bone-chilling rendition of classic gospel, over which Seattle's former black mayor officiated, and where Jesse Jackson sent his personal regrets and signature narrative condolences. When I bumped into an at-risk kid schoolteacher friend in the park who stumbled his way through a conversation disclosing his father had just died. No sooner did I return from that bit of dispiriting news when an email from a lawyer friend informed us that her mother, while visiting her brother in India, had caved to a heart condition, awarding her unbridled access to her deceased dad. No sooner did we return from her family's munificent service, where most admirably progressive virtues were extolled and scrupulously neat, lovingly proper, and terrifically tidy fashion, when our Haitian neighbor's new husband, a rabbi's son, graced us at our own home studio with his tenderly tailored private service for two, my husband and me, in honor of my perished mother. No sooner did I thank him profusely, close the door and switch off the light, when a call rang in from my oldest friend, circa 70s San Francisco, letting me know she was steeped in a vigil for her edge-of-death beloved mentor, Taoist dad. No sooner did my Bay Area friend relay news of the permanent resolve of her dad's hopeless illness mere days later, when Earth Day arrived, bringing news of yet another beloved dad's passing, my husband's dad. No sooner do we arrive home from a laudable display of civility and reverence for a true gentleman, my father-in-law, who gave me away at his youngest son's wedding and who lovingly at our last and final meeting pronounced the words in his low oxygen, mentally untenanted state directly into my tear-flooded eyes. You can do it. When we received word down south from my longtime actress friend, whose mom had just followed in the footsteps of her dad, a Jungian analyst, who barely a year prior summoned his final dream state. No sooner did I call up the best, most soothing assemblage of words, sentiments, and reassurances for my grief-stricken and fragile friend, when, no doubt, all kinds of other people died, those I don't know, and those I only know through the media. Hey, death, take a break. I say take some time off. Hey, death, I'm sick of you. And pay no never mind to my nagging cough. Hey, death, don't mean to scoff. It's just me thinks you are overexposed. Hey, death, take a powder. I prescribe for you a lengthy repose. Sick of dying. Sick of death. Woe is me. Don't you dare take my breath. 
sick of dying, sick of death. I have the highest regard for you, but do we all have to prove it? Take a breath yourself. Take a breather. Move it. My feelings are so strong, but their power in the scheme of things is negligible. My feelings must come on with their power to keep me perfectly penetrable. I am torn between, again, the, the humor that you can bring to such a tough subject to so much sadness and heartbreak so quickly together. And it's just... It's beautiful. Oh, thank, you. thank you. Thank you so much. Well, you know, this is all stream of consciousness writing. Yeah. A lot of my writing, mo most of my writing, maybe except, well, script writing, even is stream of consciousness, but it's just stream of consciousness. It's, you know, it's just my thoughts just streamed out, really. I mean, I probably tweak things a little bit once it got put into a book. Um, that, but it is very stream of consciousness. That's kind of the way my mind so tangential. <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> I um, when it comes to writing, that's that's I've always um gravitated towards that style myself. It's because to just let it come out of you, it feels more natural than thinking through what's the next line, what's the next word. Yeah. You know, I've I've dabbled in writing in the past, and the, the thing for me is just I like to see where the story goes and just kind of follow it. And yeah. I don't know, it's, it's, you can, you can kind of start with an ending in mind. And sometimes you, you'll, you know, I, I don't know if I start with an ending in mind, I like to see how I get there. I don't like to think so much. Okay. Plot point A, B, C, D. Yeah. It, it's a discovery. I mean, that's, yeah. that's really why it's stream of consciousness is because I'm drawing from a part of myself that I'm not really fully conscious of, but, and it became conscious once I let that pour out. So, I mean, to me, writing is a discovery, and that's what I want. That's what I why I do it. I want to discover something that I didn't know before. Yeah. And I did discover a lot about my relationship to death and grief and these, and these relationships, you know. Um, and that it's very compact, you know, too, is that it's called, my husband calls it rhythmic prose, this particular kind of writing, sort of a storytelling, but also poetic. Yeah, kind of writing, and it, it's it's very. That's the thing about that art form. It's it's dense. You could pack a lot. It's very concentrated. You you pack a lot into it. Well, that's the thing. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of emotion you can get into a very short amount of words, I guess, or a very limited amount of words. I love that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, Pamela, I I appreciate that you've come on and you've talked with me. Um, I want to make sure, though, before we before we wrap anything up, is there anything else that, as we've talked, that you've thought about, or anything else that you know stands out to you when it comes to the idea of loss, and you know how you, especially with the work you do on how to process that, and you know what you've learned, I guess, in your life experiences. Yeah, you know, it's. I'm thinking about your daughter asking if you still miss your grandfather, still sad. Yeah, and I think that's the thing about grief is. You know, we have our memories and we have our experiences of that permanence, you know, um, the absence, the physical absence is permanent. And um, I think that um, 
even if it's not something that just happened, because those feelings and that relationship, I mean, to me, like you're really, everything you expressed about your grief around your losing your grandfather, it just spoke so loudly about how special you were to each other, how special you might, I mean, that, that was, that was a known, there was something in that relationship that must have been so clear. Um, your connection must have been so strong and clear um, that of, you know, it made perfect, you know, it's like hearing about what you went through and what it, what your experience was around that loss. It's like every bit of what you said, said that to me, you know, wow, what a special relationship you had. And, and so, um, you know, we carry that with us and we also carry, you know, the recognition that we sure would like to still see these people, Yeah. you know? Um, and I'm, I'm working on another book actually with a New Yorker cartoonist. It has really short narrative. And one of the pieces, um, I don't have it with me. I didn't even think to bring it, but it's, it's basically about the disbelief that, that I forget that people are gone you know, in my life, like so many, I mean, that generation, I think is gone. My parents and my aunts and uncles, um, my grandparents, you know, and that I have the impulse to want to pick up the phone and call my grandmother or my aunt or people that I used to talk with on the phone. Um, cause I, you know, I moved to, I moved away from, you know, so that was my only contact as before video chats, you know, they, (laughs) I, I think, and, and even if they, I think some of them may have been still alive during that, but they didn't have computers or anything like that. Yeah. But I get this impulse. I want to call one of them and I have to, oh, wait, I have to remember that, oh, that's right. They're not here, you know, and that in that piece I talk about that I have to suspend, it takes me a while to suspend disbelief because the belief is that they're still alive is what propelled me to want to pick up the phone call them, you know? Yeah. Um, so it, I just think um, it's important to include all of those feelings with all of those experiences that we really don't want to have and to differentiate. That's one of the big tenets of emotional literacy is to differentiate between the experience we don't want to have and our expression of what it means to us to have had that experience. That's an important capacity to keep alive and keep active because, you know, like we talked about earlier and I mentioned to you, you know, you said that there's so many different kinds of losses and you've yeah. been talking to people with different kinds of losses. And I gave you this example of this teacher that I worked with as a teaching artist for her classroom for years. And she's the one that used booing death in her classroom. And she said, Oh yeah, grief and loss. I mean, sun, the sun going down, that's a loss right there. So it's important that we can have that experience because it's true because it's true, you know, and we can differentiate between, no, we don't want that person to be gone. And because they are, What's true about that is how we feel about it and what yeah. it means to us. And so that would be that would be the thing I would just throw into the mix. It may be something that people have thought about before, but I I, I don't see that. I see the baby being be- thrown out with the bathwater sometimes. You know, like uh, you know, I don't want the 
death. I don't want the feelings that go with it. I don't want any of that, you know, because the people associate it. There's the grief, the capacity for grief is glued to that experience. And it's a, it's a feeling and the capacity to have it is important to, to nurture because there are all kinds of losses in life. And it's part of our human condition to have feelings and it's important that we have them. So just to try to separate a little bit, you know, it's like, yeah, or at least to distinguish, I don't want that experience. And I'm glad I can express what it, what that person meant to me. Cause that's what you're crying. Every time you mention that I did, I cried here and I had this feeling here and it, you know, it just said over and over and over again, how special that person is. Yeah. And, um, isn't that, isn't that, there's beauty in that. You know, isn't that a good thing for you to reinforce and for you to allow yourself to have, I would think, you know? It, well, it is, and, and that's the thing. And I, I know, I hope this doesn't sound cliche, but I, and even if it does, I, I still think it's true, is that, you know, to to feel that bad when you lose someone, however it is that you lose them, there must have been a reason. If, that You must have cared about them in some way. Exactly. You know, even even if, you know, I know people that have, you know, been, you know, you cry because your relationship is over, you know, and maybe it might be for the best that the two of you are not together, that you are not a good fit. But still, there was a time when they meant something. Yeah. So I, there's a lot of, and there's a lot of complicated feelings around grief. And, you know, ultimately that's, that's why I wanted to do this, to, to talk to people. Cause I, my, my hope is always that, and because I've heard this before, what you said about how you haven't thought of some of this stuff in a while, I hear that consistently. And my hope is that when somebody comes on and talks about it, that not to stir up things that are, are settled, but to allow them, you know, space to kind of think about it. And, and even in the communication I send, I want people to come on and honor somebody they care about, honor the relationship. It's a wonderful thing. It's It's so important. And also because the society is still not. We're not there. No, not there. You know, I had in the, in, in booing death, the, the opening, I always have like a quote and see if I have it in this copy. Maybe not because it's not, you could read it. You could read it um, because you have the PDF, but it may not be. Let me see. If, oh, here it is. Mitch album. Oh, yeah. I think he wrote Tuesdays with Maury. He did. Yeah. And death ends a life, not a relationship. And that's a beautiful way to put it. It really is important. I think it's such an important distinction. Again, it's that distinction, you know. Yeah. Um, and to, to continue, um, things just keep, it's like water, you know, it keeps flowing. Yeah. <laughs> Feelings. I still love my grandfather. I'm sure, and I know you still love your family. They're... Oh, yeah. And what a wonderful thing to have that love, you know, living inside of you. Um, it's really true. wonderful. Love can be an infinite thing. Yeah, yeah and there you go. <laughs> Difficult to wrap your brain around it, but yeah, it, it is, uh, um, you know, it's interesting because we have these finite bodies and yet the energy keeping us alive, from what I hear, isn't finite. <laughs> well, that's a, you know? I think that's a good way to put it. Our, our bodies are finite. Our capacity to love and to care is not. No. I, I really don't believe it is. 
because I when I when it was just my wife and I, I remember thinking like I can't believe I can love another person this much. And then my daughter comes along and I'm like, oh God, I didn't even know. <laughs> I had no, no sense of how much I could love another person. Oh, what a wonderful thing. It's just so, so yeah. wonderful. And hopefully more people will have have that and have less of a sense of threat in their very existence. You know, so many people are are living in environments that are so threatening, you know. Yeah. And um, I think you have to have a certain amount of security because I think everybody has the capacity and the appetite for love. Talk about food. Talk about appetite. <laughs> you know, love is such food. And I think when you're when you're um, on guard, it's more difficult Agreed. and yet even more important. And I think I think there are probably all kinds of people because I know, you know, it's interesting um, to even think about that. Um, that I think love is a key part of survival. And if you are having a sense of risk, I guess I'm thinking about the people that are don't have that, don't have those kind of relationships. There are people who are deeply at risk and they do have those love relationships. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, so yeah, it's great to discover that love is an endless, an endless ocean that we can swim in. Yeah. I think that's as perfect a place as any to to send everybody home. <laughs> Pamela, thank you so much for being a guest today. I, I really, really appreciate it. You're you're so welcome, and I really appreciate being invited. Thank you, and having the experience and sharing this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, and I'm, I will make sure to everyone listening. Um, I will have a link to all of Pamela's information in the show notes. I encourage you, please, to go check Emotion Literacy Advocates. And uh, please check out her books as well. Thank you, of course, to Pamela for being a guest this week. And please stay tuned to the very end where she's going to give us one last poetry reading. You can find out more about Emotion Literacy Advocates at emolit e-m-o-l-i-t dot org as well as checking out the show notes of this podcast you can also subscribe to Our Last Mill wherever you're listening and please take the time to rate and review so that other people can find this podcast as well I would also love if you would follow Our Last Mill on Twitter and Instagram at Our Last Mill Pod or visit at OurLastMill.com if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast You can reach out by clicking the share your story button at the top of the page. And until next time, please take care of yourselves and take the time to share a meal with someone that you care about. Half green. I saw a big brown leaf in the park, three hands wide. It lay on the ground at the foot of a tree. The sight of it moved me to cry. Some kind of gorgeous, some kind of grace, some kind of elegant, so easy to face its death. I want to fall like a leaf when it's my time. I want to fall to a brave voice calling. I want to fall and fly like in a dream. No hoisting, 
and no hauling. I want to fall in a field that floats on water, and water that floats on air. I want to fall as silken lace in the space of everywhere. I want to fall in step with breezes that sweep. I want to fall like a song that encircles my sleep. I want to fall like the eased breath of permission. I caught myself wishing as I sniffed the leaf's sweet smell. I caught myself wishing I could die so beautifully well. To loosen the hold at the end of my stem, to cascade down on the wind's sturdy hem. On a designated day, no hesitation or fears in the company of likely designated peers. Envy pours over my tears. The brown pages turn, strewn about the moistened earth, telling a tale of order. So, says the tale, the tree remains standing. Nothing crucial has died at all. We leaves are merely accessories, mere fodder at the tree's back end call, dispensable in the fall. So, I am that leaf. I am like the leaf. I am like the leaf, after all.